What's up, my fellow pod travelers? This is Chris Sinclair, your host for the Good Bottle Podcast, uh, and today you just get me. <laughs> Suckers. Uh, Drew is home. He's very sick and uh, doesn't uh, want to kill any of the rest of us, so he's just going to do that, and we're going to be here without him. So it uh, just means we get to talk shit about him, and he gets to listen to it later. Uh, I am joined by my very, very, very good friend here. Uh, okay, let's um, solve an argument. Okay, your last name is is uh, I, people like to say uh, er or ier, right? Because it is French. It is French. Do we say yeah or do we say your? You know, it's funny. Um, I always tell people to. Uh, associated because it is French, like the Premier crew. So uh, Eric Grenier is is how to pronounce my name. You heard it here, folks. We are in the studio with Mr. Eric Grenier. Um, you've told me that multiple times, and I know this to be true. But I like the idea of so many other people just not knowing and hearing it for the first time on our podcast, and they're just like, "Oh fuck, I've been saying it wrong all this time." I mean, it's at this point, it's it uh, it's not going to gain me any more friends or foes if I correct people. So I just rather not and just go with what they say. Well, it's very kind of you. Yeah. Uh, Eric is a longtime industry man. Uh, he also is the current, uh, uh, is it Northern California brand ambassador for Brown, Brown Foreman? Jack Daniels, just Jack, Jack Daniels. Daniels. Yeah. Yeah. Working for Brown Foreman, you know, who owns Jack Daniels. Correct. Um, and it's just all of Northern California. What, what's your, what's your area? Well, there's two of my position on the West Coast. So we kind of split north and south. My cohort, Colin Coleman, is in L.A. And uh, he services San Diego, L.A., uh, and the suburbs. Um, and I pretty much take over from Bakersfield North. Damn, that's a lot of traveling. Yeah. You know, the way they have it set up is that 80% of my time is spent in the Bay Area. So not much as you would think. Um, there's not a lot, or at least there wasn't when I carved out my territory happening in like Fresno or, um, or North of it. Uh, and they also have portfolio specialists that cover some territory up there. So in, in our absence, they can fill in. in a pinch. Okay. So let's uh, break this down for Brown Foreman. Uh, what specifically does a brand ambassador role look like? Yeah. Uh, education is a big key right there's a lot of um there's a lot of learning involved in in our industry uh especially now it's even more uh relevant we have a lot of uh new to the industry bartenders a lot of uh industry veterans have moved on to bigger and better things or taken on roles such as mine and, and it leaves a lot of room for education in our industry so education is is what we lead with um brand uh, advocacy uh, gaining exposure for our brands and and uh, and you know just telling the story of, of our brands because the brands that we have um, are rich with history and deserve to be told. So apart from coming on like world-renowned podcasts like ours, uh, are you doing like um, you know stand-in pours? Are you like going up to the Oregon border? and uh pouring pouring jack for truckers up there or uh are you just like sitting around in a tuxedo smoking cigars like what's the deal uh more of the latter i would say um 
but no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not necessarily doing the stand-in pours. I am the guy behind the table in big whiskey events like Whiskey Fest um, and things of that nature, talking to people um, that are going to those type of trade shows. But most of my energy is focused on bars and restaurants and, and the bartenders that are on the front lines of telling the stories of brands that they can get behind. I think that you do an excellent job at your job. Uh, you and I have known each other for seven years. Let's say at least that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, we were quick friends and, and you've always come off, um, in this very approachable manner. I mean, you're a pretty chill dude. Like you don't like run around and scream bloody murder and like pour Jack Daniels down your throat like I do, which is probably why it's good that I don't work for the brand. Um, but in, I'm, we're just going to break through the ice here, but. Jack Daniels, especially in a market like Northern California that has San Francisco, and we're talking about sort of the mustachioed, vested, flat-capped mixologist, right, of which I was and in one, it, theoretically. There's always still going to be a part of my soul that, that is that. Um, how with Jack Daniels, right? I mean, Jack Daniels is the rock and roll booze. It's... You know, it's a square bottle that sits underneath the car seat of your dad's F-150. Uh, you know, what? where do you go with that in terms of brand education to keep it relevant? That's a really good question. Um, it all depends on the audience that's sitting in front of me, right? So uh, if we're talking about the mustachioed, vested bartender that is making cocktails with 10 or more ingredients. Uh, don't, don't do that. Don't make, don't make cocktails with 10 yes. more ingredients unless you're in a tiki bar. And even then, like, first of all, don't be chill. That. But, um, you know, there is so much rich history uh, that those people are delving into with regard to cocktails and how they're formulating what they do behind the bar and whatnot. And that's an easy parallel for me to make with the rich history behind the Jack Daniels brand. Uh, they've been around for over 150 years and have had the good fortune of sticking around through some really tough times, prohibition included, where they weren't making whiskey. So um, there's a lot of stories that come along with uh, 150 plus years of history. Uh, and that's an easy segue for me to make to those types of bartenders. So speaking of which, what are you sipping on? Well, funny you should ask, uh, I'm sipping on some Jack Daniels, however, um, this is one of the brand new products from the Jack Daniel distillery. Uh, just last month, uh, we released not one, but two bonded whiskeys. Uh, the first being our, uh, bonded Tennessee, uh, whiskey. And the second being, uh, to my knowledge, one of, probably the first on the market of its kind. It is a blend of three bonded whiskeys. Um, it's a blended straight bonded whiskey. So each, each whiskey is bonded in and of itself. Um, well, explain to our listeners what bonded means. Absolutely. Uh, backing up, um, bonded whiskey was the first Consumer Food Protection Act signed into law. Uh, what was happening back in the late 1800s is that um, there were whiskey distillers and there were whiskey brokers. 
And some of those brokers lost their moral compass and decided that they were going to forego the cost of purchasing uh, contract whiskey from the distillers and just add different things to neutral grain spirits to make it look and taste like whiskey. Uh, a lot of those ingredients that they were adding were not meant to be ingested by human beings and a lot of people were getting sick. So the actual distillers had an economic issue uh, and a public health issue on their hands. And they lobbied Congress uh, to put some protections in place. And the Bottle and Bond Act is what came about because of it. Um, so basically truth and labeling. Um, it has to be a product that is matured for a minimum of four years in a federally bonded warehouse. And back then, the warehouses had uh, two padlocks on the doors. Essentially, the distiller had one key and the tax man had the other. And that's how Uncle Sam got paid. Uh, that's how they uh, uh, levied their taxes. Uh, but what that meant to the consumer is that there were no shenanigans going in, on inside behind locked doors. The other part of that Bottled and Bond Act was that uh, the whiskey or yeah, the American whiskey had to be 50% water and 50% whiskey, even amounts can't be 99 proof, can't be 101 proof, it has to be 100 proof. So the consumer knew exactly what the ingredients were uh, in the bottle if it was listed as a, a bonded whiskey. And then thirdly, uh, has to be a product produced in the same distilling season by, this, by the same distiller at, the, at that distillery. And uh, so that just, you know, told people that it was produced within that six-month period. So there are two distilling seasons within the year. And those, those, um, or at least some of those protections exist in other places in the world, right? Like we're talking about like single malt scotch has very, not exactly the same, but similar sort of um, uh, requirements for them to meet in order to attain that label, right? I, I would argue... In this day and age, bonded doesn't really mean very much to the average consumer versus single malt, which still does. Yeah, it's kind of hard to, to wrap your head around um, uh, a, a law that was signed into existence in 1897, you know. Um, and to your point, uh, to the average consumer, uh, single malt has uh, just one of something, right? So that's easier for them to grasp. Sure. So, uh, yeah, you're hit the nail right on the head. So, all right. So tell me about this whiskey. This is uh, uh, surprisingly delicate, especially for being Jack Daniels. Triple mash, um, three different mash bills coming in. Um, are we allowed to talk about the mash bills? Is yeah, that yeah, something secret? Or? But before we go on, I want to um, uh, make a counter statement to your, uh, uh, to the statement that you made about the Bottled and Bond Act doesn't mean much now. I think it's actually the most stringent of the laws uh, with regard to American whiskey. Um, and, you know, speaking frankly, there's a lot I don't like about American whiskey, all the smoke and mirrors that uh, that is involved in the industry. Um, this cuts through all, the, all that red tape, right? You know, I think you can think of a, a number of brands that had sought to mislead the consumer uh, by putting things on their label that uh, 
essentially pulled the wool over their eyes that weren't true, right? Um, but the Bottled and Bond Act uh, to the consumer is a way for them to know exactly what's going into the bottle. And, 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 uh, and I think that that is really important nowadays. Do you think, do you think that the average consumer um, knows, knows that if it says Bottled and Bond, it's a mark of quality? Or do you think the average consumer just doesn't really get it? Or to the average consumer, maybe it's just uh, maybe it's you know just a sign that it's high proof. Yeah, you know, I think I think the average consumer is a big swath of people, and definitely um, not definitely not paying with a single single brush there. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so you know that can mean uh, different things to, to a lot of people. The hundred proof thing is easy to remember, right? That's mm-hmm. that's, that's pretty easy. Um, the four years in a bonded warehouse—it's kind of a layup nowadays, you know. As is a hundred proof whiskey, you can take any whiskey and and add water to it to uh, to a cast drink with you and get a hundred proof. But the real stringent nature of that of that law. Um, is even more prevalent today because, you know, what happens is you go into a liquor store and you walk down the American whiskey aisle and there's probably in excess of 300 labels on the shelves, right? It should also be noted that there's not 300 distilleries probably in, in the U.S., so that's very important. And that's the point I'm, um, I'm getting at is that there's probably 12 uh, at most uh, or maybe, you know, some smaller ones here and there, but there's a there's probably 12 distilleries responsible for the majority, a majority of those, of those 300 labels, yeah. right? You know, so, um, you know, it just, it just tells people where exactly the whiskey's being made. Um, it's truth in labeling. Uh, and, you know, I think we need more of that in, in our industry. Yeah, I, I actually couldn't agree more. I, um, oftentimes when you're talking to you know, fellow booze nerds that oftentimes they're, they're really skeptical about government hands in, you know, putting their hands in the industry. It's already so expensive and so on and so forth. But we have historical proof that sometimes some of this shit's really necessary and that we really got to like pay attention and just do things with a higher efficacy rather than just like, just to do them. hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, so you, you, um, you live in Oakland. Mm-hmm. What brought you to Oakland? Cause you and I were talking earlier and, uh, I didn't know this about you in uh, the years that I've known you that you grew up in Maine. Yeah. Uh, you you actually, said you went to high school in Maine. I did. Yeah. Um, I actually, well, I have a, a pretty, if you were to draw strings on a map of where I've been in the, in the United States, uh, throughout my tenure, it would be uh, a lot of different push pins that you would need. I was born in Hawaii. Um, I didn't stay there very long, but my father was in the military. With, uh, so you were on Oahu? Yes, yeah. Kaneohe Air Station or thereabouts. Um, my folks then moved to um, metropolitan uh, D.C. area. We lived in Maryland for quite some time. And... Uh, and uh, that's where I started going to school and uh, started grade school. And then midway through grade school, my folks moved to Maine. 
So I finished finished grade school. Um, actually, excuse me, midway through high school, uh, moved to Maine and finished high school in Maine. Started college uh, before moving down to Florida and then out to California. Jesus, what was it like going to school on a snowmobile? It was it was tough. I will be the first to tell you I'm not a cold weather person person, so I I uh, I did not care for the cold weather in Maine, and it gets pretty cold up there. I joined the the polar bear club in Maine. Did you? Yeah, I did. A, I did a, a, a few seasons of skinny dips up into um, the Wiscasset Sound. You're a braver uh, man than I. I know that, but that's fine. <laughs> Where's the button? Who's I don't. There? I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> we need the. Uh, we need the. Uh, here it is. Ah, you're welcome, oh, everybody. <laughs> I have free reign now. Drew's not here. Uh, okay, so you moved to Miami. What was in Miami? School. Um, warm weather. Um, I did go to school down there. I finished my degree in Fort Lauderdale at the Art Institute and got my degree in web design. And, web. Uh, wait. You, web design in in 1986 how were you no this was uh uh slightly slightly <laughs> later in my uh history this was this was around 2000 so i i had done some work yeah, i'd taken a break from college and gone back and got my degree in probably i think 2000 and then um learned very quickly that i would pull what's left of my hair out if i had to sit in front of a computer all day and I had been bartending and working in bars and restaurants um, to put myself through college, and, uh, and I kind of leaned back into that afterwards. Because now, I, I what was that it. like, uh, bartending in South Florida at that time? Like, what, what were you making? Was it were you doing flair like we see in in fucking cocktail? Uh, were you was it all Bahama Mamas? <laughs> were you uh, Miami Vices? There had to be some some Miami Vices, yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to disappoint you. So yes, there was. Thank God. There, there was a uh, a plethora of uh, frozen drinks of all different colors. Um, but you know, I was working in places where I thought I could make the most money. So a lot of nightclub bartending. Uh, I worked at some restaurants that were uh, big box restaurants where we would do forty thousand dollar Fridays uh, throughout the year, um, and I just I. I got really efficient with steps and got really fast. Uh, it wasn't until I moved out to California that I figured out that I didn't know shit about bartending. I just knew how to go fast. And so what was that? What was that like? What was the aha moment for you that you felt you were in over your head or, or that like maybe you'd been misled that somebody else didn't, didn't give you the information you felt like you deserved. Well, I think it's probably best to kind of um, take a step back and look at the time frame that I moved to the Bay Area. When I was in Florida, I was, I was, you know, I was making a lot of money just going fast. Um, when I moved out to California, you know, it was probably on my third interview that I was getting questioned by these uh, bar managers and owners about stuff that I really had no idea about. You know, there's one question I think one of them asked me is like, what what glassware would you put a daiquiri in? And I answered in a water goblet because, you know, the frozen daiquiris that we were making were going in those. Right. So uh, it was it was kind of a, a slow learning process of me 
kind of coming out here, didn't know anybody and was just going through the motions of, of, uh, trying to get some work. And I knew I could run circles around these people, but you know, I just didn't have the, uh, book smarts, uh, with regards to cocktails that, that they were looking for at the time. And this is, this was 2010, uh, right as, you know, craft cocktail was starting to hit their stride. Yeah. Bourbon and branch was already open, had been open for a few years. Rye was probably, when did Rye open? 2008, 2009? I, uh, I think that sounds right. Uh, we had uh slanted door. Yeah, all of these incredible, incredible establishments that were pumping out really elaborate, delicious cocktails. And um, I just didn't have the, the book smarts or the, the wherewithal to, to find these places and find a mentor. So I, I just dove into books and, and, uh, and started reading a lot. And the places that I worked at uh, allowed me to kind of uh, experiment with put drinks on the menu and whatnot and slowly gained a foothold in the East Bay. Thought I needed to move into San Francisco, um, but felt more comfortable in Oakland and having San Francisco uh, at arm's length and being able to go back and forth across the bridge. And um, I've been living in Oakland ever since. I, you know, uh, you met me when I was living out here, but uh, prior to living here, I was in Oakland as well. And I spent many years um developing that uh that east bay craft scene um <clears throat> pardon me uh i will say though i the idea as like um i don't want to say younger bartender but the, there's like this um younger brother complex that you get when you're living in the east bay right where you're like well shit i need to go to san francisco a to prove myself and b to get more money right like it's where the people are it's where the names are it's where all the attention is. I'll just go over the bridge and I'll do that. Um, I, I remember my initial interview for, uh, what's uh, Tyler's place? Um, Wayfair Tavern, when it was getting open. Um, I went in just for an interview, just to be a bartender. Uh, the bar, sorry, the uh, assistant general manager liked me. He enjo- he enjoyed my passion for for bartending and the craft. and. Uh, he was like, you know, I, I think you're really cool. You seem more knowledgeable than a lot of people who have come here and interviewed with me. I'd like to, I'd like to just like pass you along to be up, you know, for consideration for, for bar manager. I was like, well, fuck. All right. That's, that's huge. Like, that's not why I came here today. Um, but that seems neat. That'd be a nice little like pin on my fucking lapel, you know? Uh, and so I leave and I come back. I think like a week later and I have, I have a interview with the general manager. Um, and he looks at my resume and just goes, Oh, you live in Oakland. I'm like, yeah. Uh, you know, I've been, you know, working back and forth. I did a lot of nightclubs here in San Francisco, a lot of raves when that was still a thing. And, uh, and, you know, really cut my teeth and, you know, but now I'm doing craft cocktails. I feel like I could bring something to, to this. And he was like, mm, I just kind of feel like you want to come to San Francisco and play with the big dogs. I was like, fuck, man. I'm like, you're not wrong. But then also, fuck you. Like, what? <laughs> like, because my address is wrong, you're going to turn me away? It was awful. It was awful. And then uh, and then he was like, so uh, you know the, who the Bon Vivants are? I was like, yeah, I, I know the Bon Vivants. He was like, cool, we're going to have them uh, run the training and run this program. 
because uh, they have street cred. And I was like, fuck this place. I'm so out. And that was, I think that's when I like dug my heels in in Oakland. I think I like turned around from that and got a job at, uh, at Sidebar right after that. Great place. And I just, I fucking love Sidebar right yeah. across the street from Lake Merritt. It's one of my favorite layouts of a bar restaurant because the bar takes up, I don't know, what, 70% of the space. It's, it's really yeah. bar centric. It, it's super, like you walk right in. It's, it's a, a peninsula bar, I think is probably be the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I will say working behind that bar was horrific. It was really, really awful because it was so tight back there that no matter where you turn, people were always looking for your attention. So you never got a chance to like catch your breath. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's, that's a way to look at it from the bartender standpoint, but from the guest standpoint, they, they can get whatever they need at any time. Immediately. So, yeah, 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 immediately. <laughs> I will say their, uh, their muscles with uh Pernod cream, very like classically French, but mm-hmm. still hands down some of the best muscles I've ever had in California. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, one of my go-tos, uh, living in Oakland. Uh, unfortunately the pandemic has, has cut their staff down so that it, you know, they don't, they don't have any seating at the bar with actual bartenders. It's mostly, mostly just order takers and, and uh, pouring wine and uh, easy drinks. So um, it's, it's a, it's unfortunate, but it's kind of a shell of it, of what it used to be. What and a bummer. I know it is. It, and it's, you know, through no fault of their own, there's, there's math that I'm sure a million and one, of these restaurant owners are having to do and just in order to keep the doors open. And I don't begrudge them for that. Um, but in the heyday, that was one of my favorite spots. Yeah, there was, it was when I was learning, it was like there, there was a, a flora fauna. Mm-hmm. Um, a fauna came much later. F- sorry. Flora. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Flora was one of the, one of the spots that I was like, okay, this is, this is like, it was the East, yeah. like East Bay Institution mm-hmm. for hospitality and cocktails. This is it. Yeah. Guys and gals wearing the white coats. and Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty awesome. It was the white coats, but like all the guys behind the bar had their like, had their white Oxford button down, like mm-hmm. halfway undone. Yeah. So you're like, it's the right kind of trashy. Like it's classy enough, but also trashy enough that I like, yeah, I feel comfortable here. Speaking of the right kind of classy, um, when I, first um came out here I was on a recon mission my brother had moved out here first my younger brother he was working at crunch fitness uh down on powell street uh and i got in stashed my bags at at uh, crunch because he was still working and he was like i'll be off in two hours you've got some time to kill so uh, i found the first bar uh that i um, came across and it happened to be the gold dust. Yo, that was my first bar in San Francisco as well. Get the fuck out of here. And no joke. So I walked in and I sit down and, you know, I'm, uh, uh, new to the area. Don't know anybody. Um, and talk about, uh, the right kind of classy trashy. All the bartenders there were in white shirts and, and, a um, and a tie. And it was, it was, a complete dive bar. I mean, you know, try not to go to the bathroom in that place because uh, <laughs> uh, you would need like smelling salts. It was right off of Powell too. It was right off of Powell. But it saw like the gritty side of San Francisco. 
And I immediately fell in love. I struck up a conversation with the uh, two people next to me on both sides. And I'm like, oh, I can get used to this. And it was on the my decision-making trip out here. So I, I, uh, I attribute a lot of um, the decision that went into coming out here uh, to that first bar that I, that I trickled into. Gold Dust closed down in 2011? I want to say it was later than that, much later. I want to say 2015. Okay. Um, I just remember was, there was a big push to get it get it recognized as a historical, historical yeah. uh, spot, but it wasn't actually historical. It's not really historical. It just was really sad that that institution in San Francisco was going away because the landlords wanted to put in limited like express. A, it was a limited express. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But um, but great bar. Um, I took my wife on a few dates there, you know, it was just, you know, it was just, it was an institution. It was, it was like this beacon as you got off of the bar coming over the bridge uh, from Oakland. And it was almost like a, a first stop, like a rite of passage into the city. It was great. I, uh, I, when I moved to the Bay area, uh, it was about a year. And then I ended up going to the San Francisco school of bartending. Uh, which at that point in time was located um, kind of right off of right off the uh, Powell Bar, and and I remember uh, quote unquote graduating from uh, <clears throat> from the bartending school, and then that was my that was my bar I went to because I wanted to. I had been so blown away by my experience at that bar. The first time I was ever in San Francisco, and then I would go back and get a beer, get a shot, and you know whatever shitty cocktail I was drinking at that point in time, you know, Harvey Wallbanger. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I think I went in uh, after leaving the bartending school with my with my note cards, oh, okay. with my note cards of like the drinks I had to know in order to like pass the test. And uh, just started like I was like, hey, what like what can I order? Oh man, like the world's my limit. I know all these things. I don't know half of these drinks. Like let's drink them. And I think I was like I was laying the cards out, and the bartender comes over to me. He's in his seventies, and he goes, "Did you just graduate from bartending school?" And I was like, "I did." Yeah. <laughs> he was like, "All right, you don't get any of these drinks. <laughs> You're not allowed to order a single one." You're going to sit here. The best you can do is like a shot in a mixer, a beer, and you're going to enjoy being in a bar. He was like, if you want to be a good bartender, you know 500 drinks. You want to be a great bartender, you know 5,000 drinks. Off the top of your head. And I was like, wow, fuck. Like, I don't know how I'm ever going to do that. And then he was like, but the best bartenders don't give a shit about any of that and just make people feel good. I was like, fuck me. All right. Here you go. Done. Truer words have never been spoken. That was such a great bar, man. Um, so still living in Oakland. Still living in Oakland. Still living in Oakland. What part of Oakland are you living in? I'm in Adams Point. Where's um, that? Just off of Lake Merritt by Fairyland. Fairyland. Uh, for those of you outside of the Bay Area, um, you're wrong when you think that that's what it is. It's uh, it's uh, <laughs> it's the inspiration for Disneyland. Yeah. Is that that's the still the the story that that we so. all understand, right? Yeah, it's just a, it's like a cool little kids theme park 
um, that's very like make believey and prince princessy. Yeah. Um, and um, it's just really, I think it's just like a really neat space for kids. Absolutely. It's like right in the heart of a city. Yeah. Um, so that's usually my landmark when I tell people where, where I live. I live across the street from Fairland. And they're always like, oh, yeah, I know that. Yeah. Um, I don't think I got to answer your question about what we are drinking. Oh, we started. Sorry. We started. And then we got on a tangent. Please that's continue. A, Actually, can I have some more? Because it's yeah. really delicious. <laughs> Uh, yeah, because uh, so. the bottle for this, I'll take a picture for us to post on the um, on the grams. But the bottle, I is a historic looking bottle. It's it's really cool. It looks like something you you dig up dig up in a forest or in your grandparents' basement. Yeah, it's definitely old timey. Um, it's it's actually a nod to the bottle that was in production at the Jack Daniel Distillery when the Bottled and Bond Act was signed into law. Um, so obviously 1897, um, and it's got this uh, really cool um, collar to it. It's got uh, some embossed glass, and it's really, it really evokes the, um, the time period. Well, the embossed glass on the, on the like his back is something that like, you, you'll find something similar in antique shops mm-hmm. and whatnot now. It's, that was the first thing that like really confused me when I looked at this and I asked you, when was this produced? Mm-hmm. You're like, this year. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely evokes that older time period. But that's the that's the point, right? We're we're constantly in this industry digging into the past and finding out uh, what brought us to this point, right? And so the Bottled and Bond Act for American whiskey is is uh, is paramount. Um, and so these bonded whiskeys from Jack Daniels are kind of a big deal, um, not only just internally from a Jack Daniels standpoint, uh, but again, to my knowledge, I think this triple mash whiskey is the first of its kind on the market. Three bonded whiskeys blended together uh, to get one singular. Product. Okay. So what's different about each one of the mashes? Sure. So up until about, uh, up until about six to eight years ago, we were only making one mash bill, and that was the, the Tennessee whiskey grain bill. It was 80% corn, 12% malted barley, 8% rye. Um, hey, you guys hear that? He just let you guys know the recipe. Yeah, there's the recipe. For a lot for a lot of uh, uh, smaller brands. Take maybe, it home. Maybe you shouldn't uh, be so afraid of telling people what goes into your booze. Make it in your bathroom. This is Jack Daniels. There you go. <laughs> make it in your bathtub. Don't um, don't make it in your bathtub. Don't make Take it in a your bath bathtub. in your bathtub. But um, yeah, there, we're pretty transparent about all that stuff. So um, up until that time period, we were, we were only had one grain bill that we made, and we got into the rye whiskey game. Um, we weren't the first to do that uh, to jump on that bandwagon, but um, we landed in a place that I felt was really. Actually, Jack was kind of late to the game in, in, they were. in that respect. There was, I mean, it was the rye, the rye boom, if you will, was happening for several years prior to that, mm-hmm. which is really surprising given how usually how active and how responsive Jack is to the uh, to the market. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, come at it with that angle. You know, Jack, I I, I often attribute Jack Daniels. Uh, 
I also draw the analogy of Jack Daniels as a, as a ocean liner where some of these smaller brands can act as a, a speedboat or a sea, mm-hmm. right? They can turn on a dime, stop what they're doing, go in a different direction. Jack Daniels is being supplied to 170 plus countries worldwide. So every decision that they make with new products has to take that into account. And so therefore, they're often very, very slow and methodical about what they do. Uh, but oftentimes, um, you know, the, that process allows them to make the right decisions uh, um, in the end. So the rise is a good example of that. As you mentioned, you know, the boom is happening for probably 10, 15 years. Yep. Uh, and most of those rise were bookending the legal limits of the category. There was barely over the legal limit at 51 to 53% rise in the grain bill or 100%. Opposite, yeah, 95 yeah. to 100%. And we kind of sagged towards the middle because. You know, according to our master distiller at the time, they wanted to create whiskey that was going to stand up in cocktails. Uh, they wanted it in the hands of bartenders, but they also wanted it to be equally as enjoyable by its on its lonesome, you know, on a cube or by itself. So um, by sagging towards the middle, you allow for that spicy character that people who like drinking rye whiskeys to shine through, but you allow space for the supporting cast of uh, grains to show through as well. So in my opinion, it came through as a uh, more well-balanced rye whiskey. It certainly doesn't suck. Yeah, I get, I get a, 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 a lot, actually a lot of flack I, from exactly kind of what we were talking about. A lot of bartenders still have this um, <clears throat> predilection for you know, hating on Jack, right? It's like, it's, it's low class. It's not, uh, it's not worthy of, of, uh, you know, discussion. But I, I, the same, same point. Um, in fact, my, my last, last, uh, episode that came out, I made the inflammatory statement, apparently that vodka is delicious. And, uh, I got a lot of hate mail uh for that one uh so i'm going on the record and i'm gonna say it again that uh jack daniels is fucking delicious thank you i i it's also really funny you know i've worked in a lot of bars for many years that just kind of just didn't carry jack it was like well we'll carry the other tennessee whiskey we'll carry george nickel right Mm -hmm. and well now there's other other tennessee whiskeys right but jack for leaning into that uh isolamyl ethyl acetate did I, did I nail that? I think Iso- you threw in an extra ethyl. Okay, isoamyl acetate. There it is. I should know this. I, I made a ridiculous video about it. Isoamyl acetate, which is like that banana flavoring that, that kind of comes out of that old number seven. That yeah, which almost every brand tries to like squash or get rid of because they don't they don't really want that in their in their whiskey or they can't produce it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's irreplaceable. Like you're never gonna find another whiskey that tastes like old number seven. And the rest of Jack Daniels marks for you know greater to lesser extent have some of that in there, but not to the amount that old number seven does. Right. Right. Like it's just it's it's this quintessential irreplaceable brand that you, there's just nothing else that will do the job. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the 
the greater point there is that it's unique, right? You know, you, you talked about the 300 brands or, or labels on the liquor shelf coming from a very small amount of distilleries. Um, and what happens in those cases is that these contract distillers are making whiskey for a plethora of independent labelers, essentially. And for the most part, they're just slapping a label on that whiskey and, and getting it out for the public to consume and for sale. Um, well, and that that's fine to an extent as well, right? Like exactly. There's, there's there are stories worth being that. told. And, yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. The point that I'm trying to make is that an unfortunate consequence of all that is that you get a lot of whiskeys that kind of live in the same area as far as how they're, they taste. And, you know, it's, it's one thing to get behind a label. Um, but I'll say it till I'm blue in the face. There's only one true way to taste a whiskey and really know if you like it. And that's if you taste it blind. And what happens in that type of situation is that you can pick out Jack Daniels. It's unique. Um, whereas you might be in danger of uh, getting into a situation where, you know, you can have the same flavor profile for four or five different sitting right next to each other. So explain to our listeners what blind tasting is. Because, I, I, you know, I think for the, like the first 10 years of my very dumb early career, I thought blind tasting was literally like with a with a, a bandana over my eyes. Well, you're, you wouldn't be wrong, really. Um, blind tasting is is basically lining up spirits and tasting them devoid of any identifying information, whether it's the bottle that they came from, the label that adorns that bottle, um, and you know, it's it's kind of. You, you kind of stick to some categories, right? You know, like you're not going to have a blind tasting typically of Scotch whiskeys and Japanese whiskeys and American whiskeys. All you know, you typically have a blind tasting panel of the same category of whiskey. So there's some kind of baseline, unless you're a sommelier trying to take the test. True, um, and uh, and that's a whole other story we can get into. But you know, that's kind of where uh, I learned all all of that. From was doing blind tastings, going through the boardmaster sommelier But let's put that aside for a minute. The the visual cues that a bottle will tell you, regardless of the contents, are going to lead you down a path whether you want to go there or not. And for so many people, Jack Daniels was insert objection here. Right, it was the whiskey that my granddad drank, and or my drunk uncle, or uh, I got sick off of it in college. You know, oh, I love that. I, I wish, love that one. I wish I had a nickel for every time somebody was like, "Oh, that's not for me." I, I got sick off of that stuff in college. You know, it's, it's not. Uh, it just it, it doesn't make sense. Anyhow, um, so when you when you taste whiskeys blind, you're devoid of all that information, and that's the only true way to objectively or subjectively tasteful. So every year, or at least when we had the um, Midtown Cocktail Week, uh, the last year we did it, I think I, I think uh, Brad, who worked with Brown Foreman, uh, 
and is a coworker of yours and very good friend of both of ours, uh, helped me put it together. And we did a, I want to say 50, 50 spirit blind tasting. And it was sort of a, it was like a blind tasting competition and it was so much fun. Um, I'm going to put him on blast here. And I think he was expecting me never to like share this. Um, but he's, he's fine. His job is, is secure. Uh, the only, I think the only whiskey he couldn't pick out was Jack Daniels. Is that right? I think he like got in his own head and was like, Oh, I think this is like the wrong. That's easy. This, uh, it's easy to do when you taste through 50, 50, 50 spirits. spirits. Yeah. 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 That, it's mostly just my way of talking shit about Brad. Right, yeah. I'm not saying he's wrong or right or anything <laughs> like that. It's just mostly this is my me way trying of to playing. defend you, Brad. Yeah, he's not doing a good job. Uh, Eric, uh, behind you is a plug uh, for my Apple. Can you reach down there? Sorry, this is a bad content, but my computer's going to die, and I forgot to plug it in. So before the podcast ends, let's uh, let's uh, get this thing fixed. Uh, there's a big, big fat white cord down near uh, your feet, underneath the book bag. Uh, no, because it needs to plug into this guy right here. Uh, so, Drew, when we were talking earlier today, uh, I told Drew that I would augment today's episode a little bit to make it less awkward. And he was grateful that I admitted that it would still be awkward uh, in that statement. <laughs> so there you go, Drew. There's your there's your fair amount of uh, awkwardness. That is uh, uh, your daily Chris quota. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> Shit, we, we, we got sidetracked again. Damn it! We tend to do this a lot. It's unfortunate. We're well. We're uh, friends, and also we've consumed alcohol. So. Yeah. Uh, so to get back to my same shameless plug, the triple mash is a blend of twenty percent of the Tennessee whiskey grain bill. It is the backbone of it is sixty percent of our bonded Tennessee rye, and then. It's rounded out by 20% of our American malt. What is American malt? Uh, it's 100% uh, American malt. Like malted barley? Or yes. malted wheat? Malted, 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 malted barley. Mm -hmm. And uh, is Brown Foreman... Um, you guys have a, a malting house? We don't. We source mo mostly, if not all, of our malt from Montana. Cool. Um can you explain to our listeners malting? Yeah. So, and why why doesn't Brown Foreman have a malting house? Well, we're in the business of making whiskey, um, not growing grain. We have lots of great farmers that are uh, way better at that part of it. And we'd rather support them in in producing the products. But you have produce. cooperage. We have a cooperage, yes. Which uh, is barrel making for those who don't. Correct. Um, but growing uh, crops of grain, but you, you, know, you need farms for that, you need uh, hands, and that's just something that the farmers do a lot more efficiently than we could ever. Um, and it, malting needs to happen more quickly, like once harvest happens, like it needs to occur pretty quickly, or yeah, what's the deal? It, so malting is basically tricking the barley into thinking it's springtime and sprouting that grain 
contains an enzyme that is important to break down the complex sugars into single. Uh, apologize, my wife is uh, calling me. You want to take that? No, 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 it's fine. It's, uh, it's even, even worse uh, content than uh, what we have. Yeah, so that, that when that grain sprouts, uh, it releases an enzyme that breaks down complex sugars into simple sugars, and yeast can only consume simple sugars in order to make alcohol. Um, they cannot, they don't have the wherewithal to consume complex sugars. And, and this malting house in Montana, uh, Montana or Wyoming? Montana. Montana. Uh, there's multiple ways of like uh, shocking the barley so it stops malting, right? Yeah, you basically uh, want to uh, fill up this tank of grain with warm water, basically simulating springtime. The grain thinks, oh, I'm warm and wet. It must be spring. Let me sprout so that I can you know, grow and propagate. And that's what happens. Uh, then they remove the water. They dry out the grain to stop that process and and that allows us access to that enzyme. But they're not doing it like, um, let's say, in Ireland, right, where they're like they're throwing peat underneath it to, in order to smoke it to like, dry it out and stop that malting process. No, that's that's pretty um, commonplace in Scotland. Uh, not so much over here in the states. What how, do you know how they how they shock it? How they stop it? Um, I've just been told told that they air air dry it. Just air dry. Yeah. Uh, and, there may be some uh, mechanism to add heat in there, but I have not visited that. that uh, it's just, a, it's so fascinating, you know, like when, when you're getting into the, the nerdy side of booze production, there's so many uh, minute details that affect such a great level of difference into how things get produced. I always crack up. You know, I, I think one of the biggest aha moments for me in my life was, um, uh, meeting and talking to Jim Rutledge at Four Roses, and uh, and him just breaking down every step of the process. Being like, we do this, we order from here, uh, we have this distillery, we do these sorts of things. And I was like, why are you so open with telling me how you do this? And he's like, he's like, man, I spend millions of dollars a year making sure that this shit stays consistent. He's like, you can if you can reproduce it, good fucking luck. Absolutely. He's like, he's like, well, there's so many things that we have to get right in order to like produce four roses. He's like, you're not going to be able to do this out of your garage. So no. have fun. Yeah. And you know, a lot of that has to do with the yeast strains that these distilleries use as well. You know, those are, those are a big contributor to flavor of the. Does, does Jack well. keep their, their mother yeast in Texas? There's because there's like a giant yeast vault in Texas, right? And it's like it's supposedly more secure than fucking Fort Knox. Yeah, I know we keep it in, which Boston. I guess doesn't mean much. I know days, we keep but... it at, uh, yeah, I know we keep it in several places, right? We don't want to just put our all of our eggs in one basket. Yeah, if we have a fire or what have you that gets destroyed, then you know we don't want to lose our yeast because of that. That we we spent years cultivating and propagating and keeping healthy and active and not straying too far from the original um we want to we want to keep that right so we have a microbiology lab at the distillery where we do most of that work. 
We also keep uh, other uh, yeast strains from our sister brands and we found form in the portfolio of the whiskeys uh, there as well. But we also keep them in, in other places. In vaults. In, in, I would assume in some sort of vault. I don't know. I mean, cryo, cryo vaults is such a, like, a fascinating thing all on, their, all on their own, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's a rabbit hole that I'm not sure this podcast. Uh, no, we don't. Cover we're not so. uh, clever enough. Uh, right now to be able to handle that. Um, but, but yeah, it's kept in several places just to make sure that um, we don't lose it to catastrophic uh, accidents. Because Brown Foreman did suffer, right? I mean, you guys lost a, a rickhouse at some point? I, or was that uh, fires like a few years ago? I think that was more, well, a few years ago, that was 1790. It was Barton. It was Barton. You're right. Sorry, it was Barton. Yeah, and that was a, more of a structural thing, um, to my understanding. Like I don't know too much about it. It's not the brand that I work on, but I also read a lot of, uh, about the industry, and that's what I understood. Yeah, sometimes it all crosses structural thing. <laughs> um, I, we read a lot of uh, Mark Brown report on yeah. uh, on this podcast, and um, sometimes those stories cross over my brain. Yeah, but um, you know, the, I think the big fire. Was the Heaven Hill one? You know, way, that's way what, back. That's what it was. Right. What yeah. What steps um, is Brown Foreman taking in considering uh, global warming? Wow, that's a that's a big question. I'm gonna pause and uh, take a drink of water. Um, global warming. You know, as a large producer of a product that consumes natural resources you know environmental responsibility and sustainability are brand pillars from a jack daniels standpoint i can't really speak as eloquently about the larger umbrella company of brown foreman but i can to uh i can speak uh to the jack daniels efforts and um you know, that, that is something that we are keenly aware of. Um, you know, we've been around for 150 plus years and our goal is to be around for 150 plus more. And if we're not responsible stewards of um, Mother Earth and the natural resources that she provides to us to make a product for resale, then that's just not going to happen. Right. So, um, you know, we have taken measures to not only meet the industry standards, but set the bar from a sustainability standpoint. Um, and so those are the types of measures that, uh, that we take at the Jack Daniels distillery. Um, the Brown Foreman had an, uh, put out an edict that they wanted all of their brands to reach zero waste. Um, it was their zero waste initiative, uh, by the year 2025. Um, Jack Daniels, the Cooperage that you mentioned, our barrels, raise our barrels, and Herodur were the first companies under the Brown Foreman umbrella to reach that zero waste initiative. What does that What does that look like as being a zero waste initiative? The certification states that applicants need to send less than ten percent of their byproduct to landfill, essentially. Um, so you can, if you are a zero waste facility, you can be essentially 90% green. Mm -hmm. uh, but 
Jack Daniels is uh, setting the bar, as I said, and is 99.4% green currently. Um, and by the year 2030, um, will be 100% green. So, so how does that how does that look in practice? I mean, you've been you've been back to the distillery multiple times a year. Yeah, like what is that? You know, what's not getting wasted? What's being reused? How is that not what? What usually ends up in the landfill that's not ending up in the landfill now? Well, uh, for example, we have lots of wastewater. Um, it's a byproduct of distillation. Um, and we built a uh, water treatment facility at the distillery so that all of our wastewater can be returned uh, to groundwater basically at potable levels, right? Like if we wanted to supply all of Moore County with drinking water, we could probably do that with this facility. We don't, but we want to be very mindful of what we're uh, putting back into the earth because this is where we're getting our water supply. Um, since 1884 or thereabouts, uh, our distillery has sat in the same place because of the water source. Sure. And uh, we want to be very careful with introducing something um, the byproduct of distillation into the into the ground without you know taking the proper precautions. So that's just one of the things. Uh, but you know what we do at the distillery is just one aspect of being responsible stewards. Um, we need to also take a look at the supply chain as well. Um, and because we're such a large producer and we're we're sold in 170 countries around the world you know we have we in in a in a room we have a lot of say with our supply chain and, and we take every precaution to make sure that we're doing the right thing um even beyond our distillery walls that's right man that's uh and that's really heartening to hear obviously can't get into a lot of details and it's not fair to like bombard you with all of them. But, uh, but it's, it's, you know, Jack is a huge, huge brand, right? It's a house name across the globe. I say globe. Fuck you, flat earthers. Um, and, uh, you know, we, it's impressive. I think both from, uh, an economic standpoint, but then also from just a, it makes me feel a little bit better to drink it knowing that it's not crushing the soul and like destroying the earth that I'm going to pass on to my daughter. Right. And I feel, I, I don't know, man, like I, I feel like there's a, there's a bare minimum that every business needs to attempt to at least hit. And we, we try here in our tiny little store, uh, you know, where we're recording today, you know, our shipping materials, we even try to make, you know it costs us it's not the wisest economic move but we know we make that effort and and i i don't think it's unreasonable for uh, us in a store that cares about it to ask that the brands that we partner with right to to at very least like consider it when moving forward right yeah absolutely i don't know if uh you could probably count on one hand the amount of listeners uh, of your podcast that I do. Heard, There's only five of them. It's true <laughs> that haven't heard supply chain issues <laughs> in, the, in the recent years. So it's a it's a it's a big part of what 
anybody that uh, produces a product for retail needs to take into consideration sure. if they want to if they want to stick around. Well, now on a happier note, I think now is the right time to talk about. Nope, this is the wrong segment. Sorry, Drew. I'm going to make it awkward. Now it's time for Drew's favorite segment of the podcast. Hey, here's the part where we talk about podcasts other than ours, as if they exist. We talk about Instagram uh, threads. We talk about blog posts. We talk about shows, books, anything you want. Eric, who's your dope follow? Well, I brought a few with me. Yeah, that's great. Let's do it, man. All right. Um, the first dope file, I always like to shout out, uh, people from the industry that have, uh, that have cool and interesting side hustles. And I think, you know, this person, um, uh, but Mary Catherine Cobb, who is a Sacramento native, um, also she's great. I was just talking to her hubby earlier today. Is that right? Yeah. That's right. One of my favorite humans, two of my favorite humans. Um, but, uh, Mary started a, um, well, was self is a self-taught stained glass artist now. She taught herself to do that during the pandemic and has made a little bit of a business out of it. And you can find her at Swamp Mistress, Swamp underscore Mistress on Instagram. And she has, she's going to kill me for saying this, but she was doing um, commissioned artwork where people would send them pictures of, or send her pictures of their, dog or what have you and then she would recreate this in stained glass and she is talented uh for those of you who want commissioned work from her i think she is no longer going down that path so it sounds like uh, a pain in the ass. It's, it's a it, and it, like it could lot, be. I mean, a I, lot of finger cuts I'm, that's I'm, what it sounds like to me i'm i'm paraphrasing uh but uh go check out swamp underscore mistress on instagram uh and check out the dope work that she's doing yeah, she does a great job. It's really impressive. Yeah. Uh, and and the quality of it, you know, just for doing, learning this in the past year or so is just amazing. Anyway, uh, that's my first dope follow. The second one, and you probably have come across this, and if you haven't, um, I'm going to be super surprised. But um, there's a couple of guys um, that spit bars over dope samples and beats uh, and rap about Natty Wine. And it's... Uh, it's I haven't heard this. ASM, a state of mind. ASM underscore A-S-T-A-T-E-O-F-M-I-N-D. ASM state of mind. You're going to be blown away. Damn it. And it's all, oh, all about uh, Natty Wine. And, you know, I'll just let... I don't want to ruin it for you, so I'm going to let you go check it out yourself. That's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I can't wait for you. It, it would blow my mind if both you and Drew have not come across these guys previously. So, anyhow. Uh, and my last one, um, you know, there's a lot of negativity out on the interwebs nowadays. I don't have to go uh, into any detail there. But the, the dope follow that I want to end with is uh humans of new york and i, I didn't, yeah i didn't find yeah. this on my own my wife turned me on to this and it they're little vignette stories um told through the uh instagram comment section about super dope people like one of the one of the stories was about this uh 
young lawyer right out of law school that took on a pro bono case. And she was uh, this, this guy, I don't remember his name, uh, was seeking asylum. And she was just, you know, stricken with grief and fear that she was going to lose this case for this guy. End up winning anyway. Um, she goes on, the story goes on to, to talk about how she went from that um, grief stricken newbie lawyer uh, to starting a company that creates a space for lawyers to increase their pro bono cases because this is stuff that lawyers have to do anyway. Uh, and they make it easy for these law firms to take on more pro bono cases. I think they, they did, they, they touted that they would increase the amount of pro bono cases in the first year that a firm was working with them by 30%. Wow. And they, in the five years that Paladin, Paladin, um, has been in existence, uh, they've connected over 20,000 lawyers with people of, little to no means they're in need of um, representation in our country. So um, if you want to feel good about humanity, uh, even if it's just for a few uh, swipes through uh, Instagram, uh, Humans of New York, if you really want to feel good about it, uh, read the story about Deco, and I'll, I'll let you find that one out for yourself. That's right. Uh, mine is uh, pretty straight and simple. It's not it's not industry focused, but I feel like, given what we've all been through in the last few years, the uh, sort of global trauma that we've all experienced, a little bit of mental health focus is uh, is always necessary, uh, especially for me because I'm a fucking psycho. Uh, so uh, on Instagram, it's your diagnonsense. Uh, he, he is a young cat who, um, he's a therapist and he just, he breaks down real common sense ways to sort of check in with yourself and, uh, talk to yourself so that way you can kind of break free of the echo chamber and the, um, the creation of narratives in your own mind, which is definitely a thing that I'm, uh, I'm guilty of. Uh, so it's, uh, it's like, diagnosis but your diagnonsense mm -hmm. uh on instagram and i i really i can't i really can't suggest this enough like it just it's a good way to like catch yourself off guard when you're scrolling through instagram and you're just kind of mindless and you go oh shit oh okay all right yeah i'll check that all right yes that's good to hear right stuff like that i've never done that before no 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 none Scroll of us have through nonsensically <laughs> well those are some dope follows. The music for the Good Bottle Podcast is orchestrated and produced by a very, very lovely friends, the Moore Brothers. Sorry, I'm like currently also in the in the process of pulling up my uh, my script here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, everybody. Um, if you liked our episode today and you would like to uh, smash that five-star review five-star button and leave us a review that would be lovely uh you can catch me if you want to get a hold of me at chris the sinclair at gmail.com uh you can also hit up drew at dgarrison6 
at gmail.com. Eric, where can people reach you and find you? They can reach me at Instagram, uh, Premier Grenier. <laughs> Premier underscore Grenier. And I can't find it, so we're just going to finish it. Uh, thanks, everybody. Today was a really fun episode. Uh, Drew, feel better, buddy, so will you come here and do this better than me. Uh, today's episode was orchestra. Uh, sorry, produced, you know, fine until the end. Uh, by me, not not the two guys, just me. Uh, just Chris and Claire here fucking things up. Uh, I uh, thank you for giving me a little bit of your headspace. Eric, man, thanks for showing up today. I really appreciate it. I fucking love seeing your scraggly gray bearded face. Uh, and uh, Brad, fuck you, whatever it is. I enjoy talking shit about you too. <laughs> um, cheers, guys. Cheers, homie. Cheers. Ah, damn it. That whiskey tastes so fucking good. Global warming, huh? Global warming, man. That's a thing. <laughs> a thousand thing. people dead in fucking southern fucking uh, Europe. I know, right? It's crazy. <laughs>